1: This is Chthonia, the world of the dark feminine. Hello, and welcome to Chthonia, the podcast dealing with the dark feminine. I'm your host, Breach Burke, and this week our subject is going, we're going back to ancient Sumeria and Babylon, and we are looking at a goddess called Tiamat. Now, Tiamat is often represented as a dragon or a serpent, although it's been pointed out that it's not really clear from her description that's what she is. Uh, Tiamat is, is a very classic creation, creative destructive kind of deity that we see in the Divine Feminine. Uh, there's a, because on the one hand, there, there it's, it's noted that there are two parts to her myth. The first part is where she, um, there's this idea of the, of mixing of the waters. She, cause she is a goddess who represents the, the saltwater ocean. Uh, we see a similar, are going to see a similar thing in ancient Greece. And then there's other things, um, similar things in other cultures as well, where you had this idea of mixing of fresh and salt water. And there's, there's this idea that the original gods come out of this, um, uh, in the same way that we see, uh, some of this mythology in, in ancient Greece, for example, uh, you know, with uh, Oceanus and Tethys, you know, you have the freshwater and the saltwater and they are, you know, um, and they, they produce like all the different, in the, in the case of the Greek, they produce all the lakes and the streams and the rivers, all of the, you know, all of these other water sources that flow through different places. And so there's there's a creative aspect to Tiamat, but then there's also something that they call the chaos kampf. Um, that's the, the term that is used. The idea that um, Tiamat becomes a monstrous deity uh, producing monsters, and in, in her production of these monsters that she attempts to slay the gods, and then there becomes this battle of, of the great storm god who needs to fight uh, against her uh, to gain supremacy and, and eventually defeats her. So there's it, it's a little more complex than that. <clears throat> One of the things I will have to say about Tiamat right up front, when I do these podcasts, I'm always comparative. So I'm talking about the the core deity— but you may, I may say, like say things like, "Oh, well, in India there's this, or in Greece there's this," and um, I think some people have taken me to task, saying, "You know, stay on topic." And it's like, no, actually, you you cannot understand the the central figure without reference to these other cultures, because it seems very likely that um, the close relationship between some of these myths is not accidental. And um, in order to understand all the components of the story, you have to understand that you know what the similar stories were in the neighboring, uh, you know, the neighboring countries or, or you know, tribal kingdoms or, or whatever was around at that particular time. It's important to because it, because otherwise it's very difficult to understand what the under what the underlying assumed story is here. Okay, and as we frequently point out here at Cithonia, is that. The the story as it's often presented to us, um, whether it be in school or whether it be through, um, I don't know, TV movies, through role playing games, through whatever it is, um, we end up getting an idea about that deity and its qualities that may not um, may not be correct, or we may get an idea that a particular deity is evil when perhaps you know it's really not evil at all. It's just it's just represents a particular force or is doing its thing. Or we may think of a particular deity as representing something good, when in fact that may not also not be the case. And it, it's, it's important to understand, uh, I, one of the things I would like to break down as I'm doing these, uh, as I go through all of these different figures in these different podcasts, is the idea that there's this straight up um, good evil split. You know, th- These are the guys on the good side and these are the ones on the evil side. Uh, that that's an idea that really needs to go away. It's uh, it, it's prevalent in Western religion, and when we think of gods, okay, this is why we even have a hard time thinking about ancient gods, because we our idea of God comes from you know whatever monotheistic religion we may have been raised in. Um, now there are people, of course, you know, who are raised in, in non monotheistic religions like Hinduism, for example or Buddhism, which technically has no... Even though there are Buddhist deities, there's technically no God in Buddhism at all. Uh, you know, there's there's a difference in the way that uh, we think about God. And that's why a lot of people don't like to make the distinction now between Western religion and Eastern religion. But there is definitely a difference in the way that um, the idea of God is viewed. In the West, we have... Um, moved from that more polytheistic view of of the gods and, and from these particular narratives and, and understanding these particular narratives too, particularly these storm god narratives, because Tiamat's uh, foil here is a god, at least in most versions, is a god called Marduk, who is a storm god. And as I've mentioned before, storm gods like Zeus um, or Jupiter uh, or or Yahweh, <laughs> you know, the the god of the, Jewish and Christian, well, Jewish, Christian, and Muslim religions, um, you know, slightly you know, different inflections there, but the same central um, deity that's usually spelled in Hebrew lettering Yod hey Vav hey. that is the, uh, that is the, uh, that, that's what's thought of, was originally a storm god, okay? And uh, Yahweh, very likely, or Yehovah, I think is the more correct way to say it. Uh, probably comes from older Canaanite deities as well. And I've talked about this in previous podcasts, so I don't want to get too repetitive, but it's some of the background that you need to understand um what the importance of these stories are and what um you know and 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 sort of how they fit together and how they've shaped what we've come to believe because one of the things we really need to question in our culture is what we what we believe and why we believe it. You know, you know what 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 are the foundations of it, and are our foundations just built um, on something else? Are we are we taking this myth and giving it an interpretation that we shouldn't? Um, and the most basic form of this is the idea that the dark or the the monstrous figure uh, somehow represents something hellish, something demonic, something evil, and we really need to get away from these ideas because we we transfer these ideas to other things to to anything that we consider to be um unfamiliar or unpredictable or just you know unknown to us and then then that's the way that we end up demonizing it uh, by turning it into something demonic or something monstrous and we do it in ways that you know maybe not in obvious ways but you know we, we can do this with um for example groups of people who we we feel threatened by you know, it's, it has a translation to a lot of different places. So that's why it's important that we understand what are the core stories that we have in our consciousness. And, you know, how do we look at them with with fresh eyes? Okay, I I don't want to digress too much in that kind of philosophical lecture. It's not the first time I have, but also there's people who may never have heard this podcast before. And that is, that is at least part of where I'm going with uh, creating this kind of content. So Let's start. Now, who is Tiamat? I've kind of talked a little bit about who she is. Uh, I'm going to, um, let's see, I'm going to to read this particular, uh, um, let's see, I'm going to read this, there's a couple of different descriptions of her, but I'm going to start with this one. In the religion of ancient Babylon, Tiamat is a primordial goddess of the sea, mating with Apsu, the god of the groundwater, to produce younger gods. She's the symbol of chaos in primordial creation. She's referred to as a woman and described as the glistening one. It's suggested there are two parts to the Tiamat mythos, the first in which she is a creator goddess through a sacred marriage between different waters, peacefully creating a cosmos through successive generations. In the second Chaos comp Tiamat is the monstrous embodiment of primordial chaos. Some identify her with images of a sea serpent or dragon. Uh, in the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian epic of creation, she gives birth to the first generation of deities. Her husband, Apsu, correctly assumes they are all planning to kill him and usurp his throne. Okay, now this, this isn't, just to stop for a minute, this has a lot of familiarity with uh, the myth of Kronos, who, sl- you know, who castrates his father in the Greek mythology in Hesiod's uh, Theogony. Um, the gods are born from the, the earth mother Gaia and the sky god Uranus. Uh, and, and again, Gaia, uh, Gaia produces monsters, so um, which which Uranus is horrified by and, and and ashamed of. So he pushes them back down in her, and it's, which is a real, really pretty direct metaphor for you know the kinds of way we repress things that we're ashamed of or we don't like. And so Gaia gets tired of this and appeals to her children, and it's Kronos, god of time, who castrates his father, thus separating heaven and earth. And now you've got. Um, a space you've got you've got a field of, of space and you've got a field of time a field where death can occur and that is the world that we live in we don't live in the field of eternity that that the gods might live in we live in a field where we have time okay and that we measure things out that way so and, and in that and, and of course in the greek myth um Kronos, uh, as his as his sister wife Rhea starts giving birth to what become the olympian greek gods uh he keeps swallowing them Okay, until she gets tired of this, gives him a stone to swallow and hide Zeus. And Zeus is going to be, um, who is also a storm god, by the way, um, you know, ends up being, uh, you know, Zeus ends up, oh, you know, going, you know, raising up, causing his father to regurgitate all of his sisters and brothers. And then he goes to battle. It becomes the war between that they call it the Titanomachy, the war between the Olympians and the Titans. So it's it's a similar to the Chaos Kampf. It's this idea of these these older chaotic forces fighting against the course of, uh, the forces of order. Okay, so to, to keep with on with this story, it says that enraged she war, uh, she also wars upon her husband's murderers. Okay, it says Tiamat, um, and uh, and 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 Opsu is in fact killed. So uh, she takes on the form. Uh, of a, of a massive sea dragon. And then it, said, then it says she is slain by Enki's son, the storm god Marduk, not before she brought forth the monsters of the Mesopotamian pantheon, including the first dragons, whose body she filled with poison instead of blood. Marduk then forms the heavens and the earth from her divided body. Okay. So that's the basic story of Tiamat. Um, I'm actually going to read you, I have a, a condensed version of the story uh, here. That um, When I teach my mythology classes, I could read directly from the Enuma Elish, like a translation, but reading from the tablets, um, ask any of my students, is extremely confusing, (laughs) because the the, the story repeats itself like on the next tablet, and they're like, wait, didn't I just read this? And there's a lot of things omitted and left out, so it's better to have a more continuous narrative. Um, So I'm going to read this uh, this version I had um, found. I know I found it on a mythology site somewhere. I can't remember the name of it, and I didn't. Normally, I write that down, but I didn't have it on this one for some reason. Okay, so the title of this is Marduk creates the world from the spoils of battle. In the beginning, neither heaven nor earth had names. Apsu, the god of fresh waters, and Tiamat, goddess of the salt oceans, and Mumu, the god of the mist that rises from both of them, were still mingled as one. There were no mountains, there were no pasture land, not even a reed marsh could be found to break the surface of the waters. By the way, this sounds a lot like Genesis 1, too, if you read the Bible. It was then that Apsu and Tiamat parented two gods, and then two more who outgrew the first pair. These further parented gods until Ea, who was the god of rivers and was Tiamat and Apsu's great-grandson, was born. Ea was the cleverest of the gods, and with his magic, Ea became the most powerful of the gods, ruling even his forebears. Apsu and Tiamat's descendants became an unruly crowd. Eventually, Apsu, in his frustration and inability to sleep with the clamor went to Tiamat, and he proposed to her that they slay their noisy offspring. Tiamat was furious at his suggestion to kill their clan, but after leaving her, Apsu resolved to proceed with his murderous plan. When the young gods heard of his plot against them, they were silent and fearful, but soon Ea was hatching a scheme. He cast a spell on Apsu, pulled Apsu's crown from his head, and slew him. Ea then built his palace on Apsu's waters, and it was there that with the goddess Damkina, he fathered Marduk, the four-eared, four-eyed giant who was god of rain and storm. The other gods, however, went to Tiamat and complained of how Ea had slain her husband. Aroused, she collected an army of dragons and monsters, and at its head she placed the god Kingu, whom she gave magical powers as well. Even Ea was at a loss to how to combat such a host, until finally he called on his son Marduk. Marduk gladly agreed to take on his father's battle, on the condition that he, Marduk, would rule the gods after achieving victory. The other gods agreed, and at a banquet they gave him royal robes and a scepter. Marduk armed himself with a bow and arrows, a club, lightning, and he went in search of Tiamat's monstrous army. Rolling his thunder and storms in front of him, he attacked, and Kingu's battle plan soon disintegrated. Tiamat was left alone to fight Marduk, and she howled as they closed for battle. They struggled as Marduk caught her in his nets. When she opened her mouth to devour him, he filled it with the evil wind that served him. She could not close her mouth with his gale blasting in it, and he shot an arrow down her throat. It split her heart, and she was slain. After subduing the rest of her host, he took his club and split Tiamat's water-laden body in half like a clamshell. Half he put in the sky and made the heavens, and he posted guards there to make sure Tiamat's salt waters could not escape. Across the heavens, he made stations in the stars for the gods, and he made the moon and set it in forth in its schedule on the heavens. From the other half of Tiamat's body, he made the land, which he placed over Apsu's fresh waters, which now arise in wells and springs. From her eyes, he made flow the Tigris and Euphrates. Across this land, he made the grains and herbs, the pastures and fields, rains and seeds, cows and ewes, and the forests and orchards. Marduk set the vanquished gods who had supported Tiamat to a variety of tasks, including work in the fields and canals. Soon they complained of their work, however, and they rebelled by burning their spades and baskets. Marduk saw a solution to their labors, though, and proposed it to Ea. He had Kingu, Tiamat's general, brought forward from the ranks of the defeated gods, and Kingu was slain. With Kingu's blood, with clay from the earth, and with spittle from the other gods, Ea and the birth goddess Nintu created humans. On them, Ea imposed the labor previously assigned to the gods. Thus, humans were set to maintain the canals and boundary ditches, to hoe and to carry, to irrigate the land and to raise crops, and to raise animals and fill the granaries, and to worship gods at their regular festivals. Okay. Now, um, that's, uh, interesting summary of that particular story and suggests that the reason that mortals are created are are to labor um and it's interesting how we have in our mind this idea that we, we've never quite shaken that uh that, that you, know, at, you know in order to be a good human being you have to be working hard all the time um the idea that you should rest or, or have leisure or anything is is you know we, we act like that's you know well you're lazy and you know you're um shiftless and you know like we we have this thing about uh people you know going out there and working hard all the time and being productive all the time and we see in in these kind of mythologies a core narrative that you know that 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 psychologically sets the stage for it mythologies like these um are, are part of our collective memory um, what jung would call the collective unconscious and these things affect us without even knowing that they affect us. These are ideas that we assume that this is how things are. Okay. Um, now, some interesting things about this particular myth. Um, so, okay, so so we have this this myth of Tiamat, and we see that, that her body ends up creating the, the the heavens and the earth. So, even in her destruction, there's there's sort of a creation there. Okay, there's that that line between uh, creation and destruction. Um, but we also see that motif, just like we saw in the battle between the Titans and Olympians of, you know, order having to overcome chaos, you know, that, and that the monsters tend to be representations of chaos. There's something that can devour us, that can swallow us up, take away, you know, who we are, bring death. Um, it, it's, it, it becomes this ultimate sort of metaphor for what's unknown, or what's you know what what's in the depths of things you know we're we're afraid of what's what's down in the depths, God knows there's many movies and other things about you know what what lies in the depths, and really unconsciously we are we are always afraid of that. When there are major changes in society, um, you know people feel quote unquote out of their depth. Um, in Jungian terms, uh, conditions like schizophrenia um, are often treated like a drowning, like. You're 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 in, you know you're in the depths and you can't you can't find your way out, you know onto onto the dry land. Flood mythology has a lot to do with that too. The idea that you are, um, you know something is something about you has been destroyed and now uh, if you survive it and you come out, it's like it's almost like you're reborn. You're something new. Uh, and and, I, and I've talked a little bit about water. I had some other um, podcasts where I talk about these watery figures and the significance of water, um, but. Yeah, so so Tiamat tends to represent that that you know dark and primordial ocean. Um, so, what, well, about with regard to her appearance, I had said something about this before, um, and I found this uh, discussion, which is which is from Wikipedia, by the way. The Wikipedia entry on her is quite extensive, and does do a, a fair amount of research. Not only is true of Wikipedia, and you know, um, but this one this one's pretty thoroughly researched. Uh, the author here says though Tiamat's often described as a sea serpent or dragon no ancient texts exist in which there's a clear association with these kinds of creatures identification is debated The Enuma Elish specifically states that Tiamat did give birth to dragons and serpents but they are included among a larger and more general list of monsters including scorpion men and mur people none of which imply that any of the children resemble the mother or are even limited to aquatic creatures In the Enuma Elish, her physical description includes a tail, a thigh, lower parts, which shake together, a belly, an udder, which is like a cow almost, um, ribs, a neck, a head, a skull, eyes, nostrils, a mouth, and lips. She has insides, possibly entrails, a heart, arteries, and blood. Um, and they say the modern depiction of Tiamat as a multi-headed dragon was popularized in the 70s with D&D players, um, associating, um, Tiamat with later mythological characters such as Lotan, um. Yeah, that's what I mean when I say that popular culture sometimes changes. You know, and, and I mean obviously there's nothing wrong with doing that. You can you can take these accounts and you can play with them and you can create fictions out of them that, that don't resemble the original myth. That's not that's that's not the point of the fiction. The only problem comes in when people read the, the fictional account. It's like classes I had where I would be talking about, say, Hercules, and but students would say, Oh, but didn't Hercules do this? And I'm like, Wait, where did you get that? And then I realized they're getting it from the Disney movie on Hercules. I'm like yeah, that's that's only loosely based on the original myth, you know. Uh, so, um, yeah, so it's 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 interesting. Um, yeah, the we, we the bottom line is the 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 accurate scholarly way to look at Tiamat is she might be a sea monster, she might not be. It's not clear. Um, I would argue though that she probably is some kind of a sea serpent or monster because. Uh, because she's a goddess of the waters she has to do with the oceans i mean the creatures that live in oceans are creatures that swim um now you know she doesn't have to be but she's probably not going to resemble uh, a land animal she's probably going to more resemble resemble you know just by a representation of her power some kind of large um you know larger than life figure that lives in the sea so i i don't think that it's wrong to interpret tiamat as a sea serpent um And I'm going to give you another reason for that. Um, Where is it? Uh, Yeah, okay. There's a couple of other myths that I want to compare this one to. Um, There's actually two or three things. I'm going to talk about, um, what's the name I'm looking for? Uh, Ilianka, uh, which is a Hittite, uh, actually a male god, and also the tradition of Python, which is mentioned here as as an interpretation, but I've gone and done a little more research on it. Um, and also I want to talk a little bit about Leviathan in the Bible <clears throat> and in um, uh, Jewish literature as well, the uh, <clears throat> Jewish Talmudic literature. Um, there's, yeah, there's these this idea of, of the monstrous dragon. Now, the dragon isn't always female, okay, but the story is very curiously the same. So, um, yeah, there's like three or four different stories. They're very short, but I'm going to tell you um, what these are. So first, let's talk about Ilianka, okay? And again, just, just picking this up, just a quick quickie from Wikipedia here. In Hittite mythology, Ilianka was a serpentine dragon slain by Tarhun's, the Hittite incarnation of the Hurrian god of sky and storm. Um, it is known uh, from Hittite cuneiform tablets um, found at Koram Bogaskoy, the former Hittite capital, uh, Hattusa. The contest is a ritual of the Haitian spring festival of Puruli. And the story is in the first version, the storm god and Ilyanka fight, and the serpent wins. The storm god then goes to the Hatian goddess Inaras for advice. Having promised to sleep with a mortal named hupasias in return for his help she devises a trap for the dragon she goes to him meaning the dragon is male with large quantities of food and drink and entices him to drink his fill once drunk the dragon is bound by hupasias with a rope then the storm god appears with the other gods and kills the dragon okay so in one um and that's interesting too because it's almost as though the, the dragon is defeated by weighing it down by um and by uh intoxication we see in the um Tiamat myth we see well Apsu is, is killed um, by by putting a spell on him. So there's a very similar idea there, that the idea that the god, you know, loses their sensibility and is not able to defend themselves. Now in the second version of this myth, after the two gods fight and the storm god loses, Ilianka takes the storm guys storm storm god's eyes and heart. To avenge himself on the dragon, the storm god marries the daughter of a poor man. They have a son who grows up and marries the daughter of the dragon, Ilyanka. The storm god tells his son to ask for the return of the storm god's eyes and heart as a wedding gift, and he does so. His eyes and heart restored, the storm god goes to face the dragon, Ilyanka, once more. At the point of vanquishing the dragon, the storm god's son finds out about the battle and realizes he had been used for this purpose. He demands that his father take his life along with Ilyanka's, so Teshub kills them both. A version of this narrative is illustrated on a relief discovered at Malatya. Okay, um, now that's an interesting one in which um, the father, uh, you know, well, that's interesting. The son ends up um, becoming a sacrifice for the father, in a sense, um, or or acts as a as a uh, as atonement, or or um, you know, you know, uh, yeah, I guess I guess it would be an act of atonement or vengeance for the father. And that occurs to me that 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 kind of mythology could be a precursor for the idea of um you know the uh, the son who sacrifices themselves you know in the in in the case of the Christian myth, the son sacrifices himself for um you know for the sins of of mortals but but nonetheless it's supposed to be a reckoning it's supposed to be um a reparation for damage that's done and you know so you know of course with with the the ancient Hittites and the Babylonians. Um, the, the whole value system and everything is very, very different. So, um, so it has this inflection. But we see where we have, we have a very ancient narrative that points to this idea. Um, the other one I want to talk about briefly is Python. Um, now, Python is also a serpent um, who is at the, uh, at the oracle at Delphi, okay, which is in Greece. Now, uh, here's, here's the, uh, the story. It was um, Python presided at the Delphic oracle, okay? So remember oracles, there's a connection to um, the Chthonic, to the earth, to the underworld, to being able to prophesize, Okay. So the oracle at Delphi um, is where people would go to learn, learn their future or to seek advice. And this existed in the cult center for its mother, Gaia. Okay, so the earth mother is there, being the place of the name that was substituted for the earlier Chrysa. Greeks considered the site to be the center of the earth, represented by a stone, the amphalos, or navel, which Python guarded. So, okay, think about it. This is the serpent at the center of the world. And there's a metaphor there for time and for life and everything else—the the, the the cycle of time. In the episode on um, the goddess hell, we had talked about um, her son. The uh, get the name right is um, let's see. I'm not finding it. I thought I had the lit in the list here that I have, but uh, oh, you know what? I think it's here. Um, yes, uh, Jormungandr, the uh, the serpent that. Is, is big and that lives under the earth and that is sort of swallowing its own tail. These are all, and it encircles the entire earth. This is the idea of a serpent at the navel of the earth. And this serpent is slain by the god Apollo. And there's a symbolism there too. Apollo is supposed to be a god, you know, um, you know civilization and learning. Um, and, you know, it's like air conquering earth. You know, the, the serpent represents uh, the cycles of life. And uh, Apollo ends up becoming, you know, in, in opposition to it in the same way that we see that that sort of opposition to, you know, between Apollo and Dionysus, which is not, not quite so strict as, as, as Nietzsche likes to think. But there's this idea of um, this Python is the, it says here, that he's the Chthonic enemy of the later Olympian deity Apollo, who slew it and took over Python's former home and Oracle. So this sun god has now taken over the Oracle where the Chthonic uh, goddess figure, and the Earth Mother actually ruled, which, unfortunately, you know, leads people to try to interpret that idea of, oh, the Great Mother was there, and then, you know, then she, you know, then the the terrible patriarchs took over. No, it's more of a, it, it's more, but it, it shows more the way in which solar deities, um, again, in that same narrative of uh, order overcoming chaos, it's the idea that the, um, these chthonic forces, these monstrous uh, forces of the earth represented as monsters or dragons or serpents have to be slain or overcome in some way by either a storm god or, in this case, by a god associated with the sun. Uh, it's, it's a way in which... And, and, and that, you know, even though there's the, it's really probably more about order and chaos um, or the way that rationality triumphs over um, the chaos and confusion... Um, if uh, they said in one version of this myth, um, an allegory for the dispersal of fog, of cloud, and vapor that arise from ponds and marshes by the rays of the sun. So Python is associated with that. And if we think of fog and vapor and things like that, um, we think of something that that obscures. If it's foggy, like I'm sitting here in my my office and it's very foggy out today, you can't really see what's ahead of you. There's a lack of clarity. It's like the essence of the moon card in the tarot. You know, you 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 can't quite see your. You know, you don't have full clarity. You can't really see your way forward. The sun brings more light and therefore more clarity. Of course, the, the you know the, the brightness of the sun, as Jung has often said, also uh, darkens your shadow. So, um, in in the light, also some things become. Uh, you know, especially when they're split in their way, you know it. You know, people who associate themselves more with the light could, you know, they end up repressing or disavowing or trying to "quote unquote" slaughter these these other sort of more chaotic aspects of themselves. And again, there's a message there about integrating that material, not destroying it. But um, and as we as we see in the Dionysus myth, um, this idea of this this, this solar deity um which later become you know you later see it in um the way that the storm gods end up assuming this uh like Zeus for example or J- or Jupiter or Jove uh, they become this this essence of this um of the go- of goodness okay and you start to equate goodness with light um because you associate it with going to the heavens if if um, being with the gods means you're going up you know to the sun if you're if you're bad you're going under the earth right so becomes associated with goodness, and then you have the idea of the emperor as, as the, the unconquerable son, the soul Invictus, and then you have, you know, the, there you have your pun wordplay of son, son of God, and uh, you have someone like Jesus who is now represented as kind of a son figure, you know, the, the bringer of light and salvation, which Dionysus originally uh, was in his own way, where he moves from being Chthonic to being uh, a deity associated with the heights, with the celestial, with, with, the, with the heavens. So, yeah, so so you, you have that. That's interesting. Um, it says here, Erwin Rode, who wrote a whole book on um, the Greek underworld, a uh, very long book that I remember reading for my doctorate, he said, Python was an earth spirit who conquered by Apollo and buried under the Amphalos, it is a case of one god setting up his temple on the grave of another. And yeah. Um, you'll, you'll do see that you will see quote unquote graves of gods that are, um, shown even like a grave of Zeus, for example, but it's where their apparent, um, light aspect, um, their, their Chthonic aspect, because all the gods have a Chthonic aspect, all the ancient gods. Um, you know, ends up becoming kind of, yeah, pushed under the surface in the same way that we might repress a bad memory or push something to the back of our mind that that is unpleasant or that we're ashamed of or that, oh God, you know, people will say, I blocked that from my memory, you know, it's not uncommon for that to happen. So this becomes kind of a, a symbol of that. Um, but you have this mythology. You see it in Tiamat, and you see it. And these are these are other examples of where the uh, female monster, uh, the, the monstrous serpent of some kind. In the in the Hittite version, the, the serpent is male. But <clears throat> there's this destruction of the, um, you know, th- there's the, there's a destruction of the dragon, um, either to uh, to create something new out of it, um, or it's it's a it's a case of you know. imposing a kind of order or a new, um, you know, new set of values on top of it. Um, Now, from the Chaldean history, there's also the story of uh, Amoroka. And I'm going to read this also. Um, Berossus, in the first book of his history of Babylon, informs us that he lived in the age of Alexander. Um, And he mentions there were written accounts preserved at Babylon with the greatest care. Um, These writings contain histories of the heaven and the sea birth of mankind and of the kings there in one of these stories there was a time in which there existed nothing but darkness and an abyss of waters wherein resided most hideous beings which were produced of a twofold principle there appeared men some who were furnished with two wings others with four and with two faces they had one body but two heads the one that of a man the other of a woman and likewise there are several their organs both male and female so they are um, hermaphrodites basically um, but also with wings. Other human figures were be seen with legs and horns of goats. Some had horses' feet, while others united hindquarters of the horse with the body of a man, resembling in the shape hippocentaurs. Bulls likewise were, bred, likewise were bred with the heads of men, and dogs with four-fold bodies, terminated in their extremities with the tails of fishes. Horses also with the heads of dogs, men too, and other animals with heads and bodies of horses and tails of fishes. So there's an embodiment of chaos. Um... And, uh, in addition to these, there were fishes, reptiles, serpents, and other monstrous animals, which assumed each other's say shape and countenance of all of which were preserved, uh, delineations in the temple of, of, Belus at Babylon. And the woman presiding over that was Amaroka in the Chaldean language is Thalath or in Greek Thalassa, which by the way, is also considered to be another root of the name of both Tiamat and Tethys. It has to do with the sea. Okay. Um, but someone else, but it says here that might also equally be interpreted as the moon, all things being in this situation, Belus came, cut the woman asunder. So he cut her in half. And of one half he formed the earth and the other the heavens. Try to guess which half formed the earth, probably. Probably the feminine half and the masculine half forms the heavens. At the same time destroyed the animals within her. Um, and so again, you have this idea of, of separation. Uh, separation is what's required for life um, as we know it. We, we live in a field of opposites. So these gods are, are, are seen as creating order, and the way that we create order is by separating out. Uh, everybody has a certain role. Everything's not just kind of mixed together. And that's an idea that in the time that we're coming into now, where we're seeing that these boundary lines are not so strict. Um, you know, we're, we're not we don't have these strict boundaries between good and evil. We don't have these strict boundaries between... You know, even between gender and things like that, I mean, th- you're seeing that this is not, um, you know, the way it's sort of been decreed here is not always the way it is, but, but it does give you an idea of the psychology of people who, for whatever reason, even though you may say, well, geez, none of that's any of their business, you know, like, especially when it comes to things like, you know, non-binary or transgender kind of things, there's sort of this unconscious, because that Western narrative is so deeply embedded in the unconscious that they say, well, no, there, there has to be that split, there has to be that separation, you know, that's what creates order. That's that separation. But um, that isn't necessarily the case. And this is why one of the reasons frequently you will hear people sort of, quote unquote, um, not necessarily returning to the divine feminine, but allowing the divine feminine expression. Um, these, these other attributes are not things to be gotten rid of. As you can see, a goddess like Tiamat, um, she can be fearful and she can produce monsters, but she can also be protective and can be about um you know um carrying and bringing people together and and um producing and bringing abundance too so it's not um they're not unilaterally a a force of good or evil uh and the storm storm gods are interesting because they're the ones that often when when something is overpowered for example if, if you know it becomes uh oppressively humid or oppressively hot and then you have a thunderstorm. Thunderstorm cools things off and clears the air. So it, it, you know, so really the role of a storm god should be to balance things. But frequently in these stories, you know, the storm god is there to vanquish the other side and and you don't really want to um you know, at least you know, once once you started applying rationality to it, once you started applying ethics to it, it becomes about well, we want to eradicate all the bad things and keep all the good and it's it's a more delicate balancing act you know these these um these allegorical figures of you know um you know you know dogs with a head of men and things like that they're they're sort of allegories of of what actually sort of lurks in the background you know things are not um you know when we see things in the very dualistic way that we do it's got to be this or it's got to be that um you know, we assume, we assume that something can't be both, or we assume that something can't, um, you know, it, it's, you know, that, that there's, you know, there's only one way to look at something. Monotheistic religion kind of reinforces that, too, because in monotheism, you know, there's the idea of one God, therefore there can only be one way. This is why the three major monotheisms fight with each other, because they say, yes, yes, but we have the, the correct revelation. And, you know, there's probably truth in all of them, but... There, there's not an ability there's an ability to say no there there's got to be you know a, you know the name of order <laughs> you know there's got to be one way and that's not That doesn't really represent the reality. Um, what we need to face up to is the kind of psychological realities and also the realities of nature that this represents. It represents the fact that, um, no, it's not, you know, um, even in the sciences, you know, we, we, like there's there's very strict laws and, you know, cause and effect. And this, you know, this, this you know, begets that. And yeah, okay, generally speaking, things are fairly orderly, but there are also things that are not and we we don't know how to deal with that and we rebel very hard we we fall back into that that tribal attitude of um i'm going to protect my group and i'm going to you know try to keep the other out or put the other down and you know the, the mythology is like this are where this kind of idea stems from and you know there's and i'm not necessarily saying that that's in a bad or evil mythology either i'm not i'm not necessarily putting a moral inflection on it I'm simply pointing out that um you know, exercising these other kinds of, you know, these these dark serpentine forces from our psyche is probably not the best thing to do, as Nietzsche had said, um, you know, uh, paraphrasing, of course, but he said something to the effect of, be careful when you exercise the, you know, the devil that you're getting rid of the best part of yourself. Um, there's, there's things to be gained from um, exploring these things that are often represented by this kind of dark feminine. Okay, well, the last thing I want to talk about, because I am kind of... I'm kind of going off in my lecturer mood here. It's been a while since I've I've taught an in person class. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Leviathan and Behemoth, okay, which are figures that we see mentioned in a few places in the Bible. Um, it's also mentioned in the Midrash, um, that where. Uh, I'm just going to say here, Leviathan um, is described as a dragon who is a, presides over the sources of the deep and who with the land monster Behemoth will be served up to the righteous at the end of time. So again, this idea of cutting up the monster um, to feed and nourish and the way the Tiamat is cut up and then she ends up forming you know, the fertile land and things like that. Um, the Midrash um, uh, was being composed. It was held that God originally produced a male and female Leviathan but lest in multiplying the species should it destroy the world, he slew the female, reserving her flesh for the banquet that will be given to the righteous on the advent of the Messiah. Um, Rashi's commentary on Genesis 121 repeats the tradition. God created the great sea monsters, the Tanimim. According to this legend refers to the Leviathan and its mate. God created a male and female Leviathan, then killed the female and salted it for the righteous. For if the Leviathans were to procreate, the world could not stand before them. And, of course, he would kill the female because the female might mate with something else, too. So, um, And it's, uh, it will be served as a feast uh, to the righteous. This is from the uh, Babra ba- Baba Bathra in the Talmud. Um, the Leviathan will be slain, and its flesh served as a feast to the righteous in the time to come. Its skin used to cover the tent where the banquet will take place. The festival of Sukkot, therefore, concludes with a prayer recited upon leaving the Sukkah, which th- that's a word for booth. May it be your will, Lord our God and God of our forefathers, that just as I have fulfilled and dwelt in the sukkah, may I merit in the coming year to dwell in the sukkah in the skin of Leviathan next year in Jerusalem. Okay. And uh, it says, When Leviathan is hungry, he sends forth from his mouth a heat so great as to make all the waters of the deep boil, and if he would put his head into paradise, no living creature could endure the odor of him. His abode is in the Mediterranean Sea, and the waters of the Jordan fall into his mouth. And, um, yeah. And in its uh, the, the Fish That Swallowed Jonah, in another uh, midrash, um, uh, it's in the Perk de Rabbi uh, Elisir. Um, I'm not sure I'm saying that right. It is stated that the fish which swallowed Jonah narrowly avoided being eaten by Leviathan, which eats one whale per day. So apparently, Leviathan's very big. Um, and yeah, so you, so you have these representations of these monsters, and you have the idea of the monster being cut up. Um, by some kind of a storm god or the son of the son of a god or something there's this kind of righteous figure so you end up seeing this being uh, kind of conflated with salvation mythologies like the mythology of jesus because yet you see in revelations too this idea of jesus kind of coming to <clears throat> you know slay the great beast that that or or subdued or or, or slay the great beast that that rises up and so we start to equate <clears throat> in that context, we start to say, um, well, you know, these these storm gods, these gods are gods of righteousness, um, or the St. Michael image of, you know, coming down with his fiery sword to to slay. And these are just these are, you know, these are ways in which we try to rid ourselves of things, but that we not things we should not be trying to necessarily rid ourselves of, things that we should be um kind of looking in the face and saying, okay. You know, what is their purpose? What is, you know, we we all have to pass through um, these unpleasantries of life, these darknesses, and how do you come out on the other side? You know, you don't come out, you know, you can't just say, I'm I'm not going to ever have any of those experiences. I'm just going to cut all, you can't. I mean, you can try. This is why also in a lot of these mythologies, the other one is Zeus and Typhon. That's another one I'm forgetting about when um, the the Earth Mother sends up uh, Typhon, who she bears with Tartarus, the depths. She, um, you know, Typhon comes and Zeus does battle with Typhon, who nearly um, annihilates the world with his fiery breath. And Typhon is, is is consigned to Tartarus. But again, there's that same idea of the dragon. But you notice the dragon. Most of these cases is never never exactly killed. Even in this case, where Tiamat's killed, it's like her her body becomes the um, the firmament on which we are able to live. She represents that separation. She she represents some kind of a unity of something. Um, and I think it also represents why as humans, we can't live in, um, we always think of, you know, I see people who, for example, look back at the story of the Garden of Eden and say, oh, see, Adam and Eve messed up, you know, if they hadn't messed up, look what a perfect scenario we're living in. And myths like the Tiamat myth show us that, no, that's, that's not exactly how it is. You don't, you can't live in the field of the gods because you're not actually living, um, those fields are very chaotic. There's, there's no, I mean, anything goes. Um, I mean, yes, there are gods of order that battle against gods of chaos, but the reality is that the forces of the world you occupy are not, um, they're not meant to be all, you know, you know, unicorns and roses, I guess, you know, or, you know, you know all, all pleasantries. It's not um, living outside the field of time. It, it's just, it's not possible to do it. Unfortunately, things like death are a precondition, Of being able to kind of have the life that we have that's orderly where we measure things in time and we do things you know according to certain stages of our life and so forth so yeah you can't you know you you can't live in that unified field in in some fashion some of these myths that i'm reading to you they have to do with the fact that that's that's really sort of a chaotic state and one that um in the kind, of way, the kind of ways that we're viewing things as separate would be very unsettling to us, would be probably more than our minds could handle. So just some things to think about there. Um, I'll mention really quickly, too. I usually go over the etymology of the names initially. And I just want to make a quick mention of that before I end. Um, okay. Uh, Walter Burkert, who's a very uh, famous Greek historian of religion, or historian of Near Eastern religion, really, and Thorkild Jacobson argue for a connection of Tiamat with the Akkadian, work, uh, Akkadian word for sea, tamtu, which following an earlier form, Tiamatum. Um, and Burkert continues by making a linguistic connection to Tethys, who is the actually, she's a freshwater goddess. Oceanus uh, represents the salt water in Greek. He finds the later form, um, Thala, to be related clearly to the Greek Thalata, or Thalassa, which is sea. The Enuma Elish is named for um, Kippit, when above, the heavens did not exist, nor the earth below. Apsu, the freshwater ocean, was there, the first begetter, and Tiamat, the saltwater sea, she who bore them all. They were mixing their waters. It is thought that female deities are older than male ones in Mesopotamia, and Tiamat have, may have begun as part of the cult of Namu, a female principal watery creative force, with equally strong connections to the underworld, which predates the appearance of Ia and Enki. Okay. Um, Harriet Crawford finds this mixing of the waters to be a natural feature of the middle of the Persian Gulf, where fresh waters from the Arabian aquifer mix and mingle with salt waters of sea. It's especially true in the region of Bahrain, whose name in Arabic is Two Seas. Okay, And also, this is another thing that was mentioned to me and was also mentioned to me by a Jewish scholar at one point, uh, It's claimed to be a cognate with the Northwest Semitic word Tehom, the deep or abyss, which you see in Genesis 1-2 when they refer to the you know uh, the abyss, and you know in the beginning, you know God created the heavens and the earth out of this this abyss, which is known as Tehom, which is said to come from Tiamat. So Tiamat becomes a representation of the abyss. But remember that abyss can also represent possibility. It doesn't necessarily necessarily represent monsters that are going to kill you. Um, it's only uh, if it's you know. E- only being approached in a certain way does it become something dangerous um like all of these things that have to be approached with care but that doesn't mean they shouldn't be approached okay that's enough I, i hope this one was not too philosophical and too kind of off the rails but but these these types of creation myths to me have a lot more to do with human psychology and with um the core narratives that uh that create the foundation, you know, of all of our assumptions about, um, about these figures. And really if you want to just look at the masculine and feminine part of it about our idea of these, this sort of masculine hero storm God warrior, uh, versus the monstrous feminine. And that, that idea is one that, you know, um, you know, be careful of, of demonizing all, all these feminine creatures as kind of monsters. Um, that that's not uh, – it's not really helpful to you, and it just, it just maintains the kind of uh, toxic splits that we tend to have in ourselves psychologically because we're not, we're not able to integrate those things because we, we have some kind of unconscious assumption that that's not how things are. Okay. I want to thank you again for listening. Um, please check out kathonia.net, which at the moment has all of my works. Um, there'll be a new liminalreiki.com coming. Check my social media, which uh, is kathonia podcast, two words on Facebook, one word on Instagram and Twitter, and also just kathonia on YouTube. And um, if you would like to support my work, patreon.com slash Um, I have that and I'm, I'm trying to do more I'm hoping to have a few more special podcasts for uh, patrons, and in fact, they may have already gotten some of them by the time I publish this one, because I always try to record some episodes in advance, so uh, I'm, not, I'm not recording them the night before I put them up, so um, so it's, it's possible that they'll have that, but you know, there, there are some extra benefits. Um, certainly, at the, the minimum, you get uh, access to the podcast earlier than others. And, you know, there's there's some other benefits. Sometimes I have some giveaways, extra podcasts, um, and, you know, eventually there'll be th- discounts on things like courses and stuff uh, when that comes about. Uh, thanks again to the, all of you who have been supporting me so far. I really appreciate those of you who have recently subscribed and those who have been around for the last couple of years uh, along with me. And with that, I will see you in the next episode.